Thank you, brother. Good morning once again, church. Please open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 13 through 16 this morning. Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And once you found your place in the scripture, please stand to your feet as we read God's word this morning. Malachi chapter 2. Verses 13 through 16. God's word says this. And this second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word from Malachi. We thank you that it shows us what it means to be in covenant with you, what it looks like to be um, in breach of contract or a breaking of that union, Lord, as we see Israel repeatedly turning their backs on you and disregarding the law that you gave them. Lord, we see uh, the sanctions and the punishments that you brought upon them, Lord, to bring them back to repentance and, Lord, ultimately to warn us that being outside of covenant with you and union with you is just horrific, Lord. It means eternal punishment in hell. And, Lord, we're reminded uh, throughout Malachi how much you love your people, how much you desire for them to be close to you and for us to love you back. And so I pray that this morning's text would lead us to Christ, lead us to greater love for you, lead us to be more holy, lead us to be the church and the people that you would have us to be as brothers and sisters in Christ, and lead us to be the messengers that you've called us to be in this world, spreading your fame and your name and your gospel throughout all parts until Christ comes again. So Lord, be blessed, be honored, be glorified. May you be magnified as we explain your word today. And may you have your will in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, please be seated. Friends and visitors, please be seated. The sermon is titled, God's Love for Marriage. This is part two. Last week we preached another sermon, God's Love for Marriage, entitled Covenant Faithfulness. Today's sermon is titled, God's Love for Marriage, part two. We're talking about covenant unions today. Covenant unions. Last week I shared with you how God used the terrible circumstance of my parents' divorce to shape and to change my life for the better. During that difficult time, I'll just recap real quick, during that difficult time, God used my church when I was just a teenager to care for me, and I was able to see a stark contrast between my parents' faithlessness towards God because they were not faithful to God, that they abandoned God, and I was able to see that contrasted against 
my church's faithfulness to God. They stayed in loving communion with God. And the church that loved me, that church that loved me, is the reason that I decided to eventually be a pastor. Of course, it was for God's glory. I wanted people to know the, the gospel and to hear Christ's death and resurrection. But that church shaped me to the point where that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Now, what's interesting about my parents' divorce is that their divorce was, and it still is, a mystery to me. Neither of my parents had accused each other of adultery. Like most marriages, there were the typical arguments, but I rarely, rarely saw my parents fight or blow up. Not that they didn't. It was just rare. Neither of my parents were drunkards, and so my dad never came home from work and beat us or abused us or my mom that I could see. And I'm sure I didn't see everything that took place behind closed doors. I'm not that foolish to know that things take place in privacy. But it seems that their marriage broke up due to what many people call irreconcilable differences. They just didn't get along, and one of them finally had enough. So my mom left my dad, and my dad refused at that point to pay alimony or child support, and that just left us on welfare and in a horrible situation. After my parents' divorce was finalized, my dad remarried. And eventually, he had a second child, or not a second child, uh, it would be another child with that second wife. So I have a half-brother that I've seen once. Around 15 years after that marriage, my dad decided to clean out their bank account with no explanation, 50 grand, just yanked out and disappeared on that family. All that family ever got from him was a little letter and a half-hearted apology with no intent on his part to fix the damage that he had caused. Eventually, he married another lady in Nevada without ever having divorced the second wife. And his second wife, amazingly, has nothing to say mean about me or my family or my wife or my daughter. And we've maintained a little bit of a friendship over the years because we actually went to church together at that same church in National City, California. Um, And uh, she's come to realize that the pain that she's experienced from my father was also something that we suffered too. And my family is just littered with unbiblical marriages and unbiblical divorces. Remember that in Malachi, God has been addressing many sins with the nation of Israel. Complaint number one, and there's six of them, Complaint number one from God is that Israel does not believe that God loves them. God, you do not love us. And that's why we sang songs today that say God really loves us. Because we don't ever want to fall into that same disbelief. God, man, my 401k took a huge hit. He don't love me. Baloney, okay? God really does love you, okay? Your circumstances don't explain God's love. And God showed them otherwise. Complaint number two from God is that Israel does not love God, it's the reverse is actually true. They don't love God. God shows them how their participation in the sacrificial system, it actually showed their hate for God in that they brought polluted sacrifices to the priests and the priests were offering these nasty sacrifices on the altar of God, which shows that they didn't think much of God. They didn't love him. Complaint number three, from God, is that Israel, as a nation, has broken union, has broken covenant union with God. And if you read through Malachi, you're going to see this word covenant come up over and over and 
over again in regards to God and Israel, in regards to God and the priests, in regards uh, to marriage covenants. And you're going to see this phrase come up over and over again, this phrase of covenant, which is a contract, a promise, a union, a commitment. It's all the same. So God's problem number three is that Israel has broken covenant with him, union with him. How? Because they've married pagan idol worshipers. The men there are leaving their wives to go marry those who don't love God, who don't love Yahweh, the God of Israel. So they're deserting their spouses as well. And we discussed last week, and it's very important that you go back and listen to this if you didn't hear it. We discussed last week how union with God means that other believers are in union with God, which means that we are also in union with each other. If you're in union and connected to God and someone else's, by virtue of that connection, you are also in union with each other. Okay? We saw last week the ultimate purpose of marriage. The ultimate purpose of marriage. First of all, marriage is temporary, and there's a bigger purpose for it. It is to point to Christ's eternal union with the church. Jesus is called the groom, the church, that is those who believe in Christ's death and resurrection for their salvation. That's the church, whether local or universal, through all time, all believers, they're the church. They are united to Christ, and that relationship is eternal. Christ loves his bride, and he dies and rises again to make sure that she does not die eternally, but is resurrected physically and spiritually to be with him forever. So earthly marriages are a union of this eternal union. And that's why husbands are supposed to love their wives. And wives are supposed to love their husbands because Christ loved the church and the church worships and adores her husband, her Savior, Jesus Christ. So we get to act that out in our marriages. We're a living drama for the world to see. And God has given marriage thus to the entire world so that they can understand what union with God is like. And we have to help them see that. Now, since Christ is not in union with unbelievers, okay, then we saw how we are to only marry those who are in covenant with Christ because we're supposed to imitate that relationship. So if Jesus is only married to people who love him, we should only marry people who love him. We're imitating that. Make sense? Okay. We saw the danger of what it means to marry those outside of the covenant with Christ and how marrying those who don't, believe in the gospel, that can lead us away from the Savior. We also looked at the consequences of abandoning God's family for them and for us. When they dealt treacherously with each other and married pagan worshipers, they were not just breaking union with God, but because they were in covenant, all in covenant with God, they were breaking covenant with each other and and dealing treacherously with each other. We saw that deserting God's family was cause for excommunication, which is the removal from God's family. And that's what God did with the Israelites. They broke covenant with him and their, with their spouses, okay, when they were faithless and treacherous. This morning, we're talking still about that third issue. But in that third issue of marriages, because this is the problem God has, the third thing you do, you got jacked up marriages. First part of this problem, you Israelite men are marrying pagan worshipers. The second problem God has, again, with the Israelite marriages, is that they are being faithless to each other. They're not staying married. Instead, they are divorcing. So problem one, in marriage, pagan idolaters. Problem two, they're divorcing those in covenant with God. Both 
are acts of faithlessness and treachery. So what you need to understand is even though we're talking about marriage, the bigger purpose is they are breaking covenant with God and with each other. Make sense? Marriage is the occasion for this for this situation. There's other ways in which they could break covenant with God, but this is one in particular that he's addressing. Both are things that God hates, faithlessness and treachery. So our first point this morning, and if, um, I don't know if, uh, oh, never mind, I had an idea in my head. John, did you put up the, oh, if you want to, the outline for the sermon, you can take your phone, and I think there's a, a QR code up there. You can just flash your camera at it, and it will actually pull up the outline so if you're unable to see, or if you would like this for yourself or later, there's a PowerPoint presentation on there that you can go to, um, and you can save that for your computer or your phone or whatever, okay? So that'll help you if you just want to listen and pay attention, okay? The first point we see is this. God's love for marriage is connected to your worship. You need to hear this, really. This is a very important thing. God's love for marriage, it is connected to your worship, okay? Your marriage is not a private thing, although there are private things about it. It is connected to your love for God and your union with God. And if you are in union with God, you are in union with other people. So the way that you live out your marriage is radically connected to your worship life. Look at verse 13. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Now, if you recall from me, with me, from our previous sermons through Malachi, you'll remember that God has, again, several problems with Judah. He also calls them Israel. That's the southern kingdom. The people have been bringing polluted offerings to be sacrificed by the priests. I mentioned this briefly. The priests are lazy right now. They don't love God like previous generations of priests did. And their assistants did. And we talked about that. You can go back and listen to the previous sermon for a fuller explanation of that. These two groups, the priests and their assistants, they are all from the tribe of Levi. So they are all Levites. That is from the tribe of Levi. Neither the people of Israel or the tribe of Levi, consisting of Levi, uh, priests and assistants, they, they didn't think much of God at this point in history. They did not love the Lord. And instead they regarded God as filthy, as corrupt. How do we know that? Because they brought defected and defiled, diseased, crippled, and stolen offerings to the altar of God. They're literally covering the altar with wicked, nasty, disgusting offerings. In effect, they're saying, Lord, this is what we think you are worth. We think you're worth trash. So they don't love God, and it's evidenced by their offerings. They should be bringing perfect sacrifices to God to let God know, Lord, you are worthy of perfection. I'm supposed to be perfect. I cannot bring myself to you in perfection, so I will bring a substitute perfection in my place to represent what I am supposed to do but fail to do all the time. Are you with me on that? They're bringing perfect substitutes in their place. Instead, they're bringing corrupted offerings, which is the equivalent of someone, it'd be like bringing their sinful self to God, saying, God, my sinful, disobedient life, this is what I think of you. That's what, that's what they're saying. The sacrifice is supposed to represent what they should have done, but did not do. This was a violation of God's contract or covenant 
with them. God saved Israel from Egyptian slavery. And you can read that at the beginning of Exodus. It was a hard life that they had to live. The way that they were being forced to do hard labor and being beaten and working out in the hot sun the way that they were doing it. And they cried out to God for help in their oppression. And God saved them. And now, because God is their king and Pharaoh's not their ruler, before they had to obey who? Pharaoh. You make those bricks. You, you build those buildings. I don't care how hot it is. I don't care if you get dizzy from working out in the sun. And they would get beaten and whipped. And that was their master. And they had to obey them, the Egyptians. But now God is their master, and now they're required to obey him. And our God is a good God. And somehow, they don't want to obey this good God. At some points, they say, we'd rather go back to Egypt. Don't ask me why. Ask ourselves, why would we rather go back to our sin than to our loving God who saved us? Now, part of this covenant with God and Israel included rules for proper offerings and sacrifices. Another part of this contract includes rules for who to marry and who not to marry. It's all part of this agreement, this contract, because God saved them. We talked about it last week. The Israelites were only to marry people within the covenant of God. And so by several things, by offering nasty sacrifices and by marrying people outside of God's covenant people, they broke contract with God or covenant with God. Because of this, God is going to remove them or excommunicate them from his blessings. It's important that we piece all this together because you're going to see something amazing about marriage in a little while. They were removed from being his people, cut off from blessing. And so Malachi the prophet is giving them a message from God about these violations. Israel's broken covenant with improper sacrifices. They're marrying pagan idolaters. And today we see that they're engaging in divorces that the Lord did not permit. They've breached contract and covenant once again. And like any legal contract, when there is a breach, a violation, there is a penalty or sanctions, right? And often that's why lawyers get involved. Oh, you didn't, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. So therefore, you owe us something to compensate for your breach of contract. We understand how contracts work. And so that's what this is, a covenant, a contract. There's penalties or sanctions. In this first point, we see their treachery, by, uh, their treachery of others. Israelites' treachery of others right, is, uh, is by divorce. That's how they're betraying each other, which leads God not to accept their worship acts. Look at what Malachi says. Look at what God says to Malachi. He says, here's the second thing you are now doing. But before we're told what the second thing is, they're told some of the consequences that they have done wrong. Here's the second thing you do. Before I explain what it is, I want to tell you all right, that God is not accepting your offerings to him. The offerings that you bring to the altar because they're polluted and they're nasty on this altar. That's, that's one reason why God doesn't accept your offerings. The second reason that God doesn't accept their offerings is because he tells them, you are divorcing your spouses, which is an act of violence against them. It's treacherous what you are doing. And then they have the audacity to weep and to wail and to mourn and cry because God doesn't accept their worship, their offerings. They are clearly bothered that the Lord is not receiving their offerings. Well, why, why would they be bothered? Well, first of all, they're, they're living a, a, a double life. They're, they're trying to stay connected to God, but they're also connected to pagan idols. So they're kind of doing the synchronistic worship where they want the benefits of both, okay? the blessings of both. Because 
Why are they bothered? Well, because if the Lord is not receiving their offerings, then they are not forgiven. And they are thus not reconciled to God. Okay? The sacrificers are not accepted. They want cheap grace. They want cheap grace. They want forgiveness without fellowship with God. Let me say that again. They want forgiveness without fellowship with God. God, here's my offering. Uh, forgive me, but I'm just going to go over here and uh, I'm going to join myself to these idols too. And I'm, I'm going to marry those women over there. I, I, just, I just want you for the forgiveness of sins and the blessings that you have. But I'm going to cheat on you, God. So they want forgiveness without fellowship with God. Fellowship means union. They want life without having to live for him. They want life without having to live for God. They want covenant blessings without the proper covenant behavior. Are you tracking that? Okay. They, want it. they want God to keep his end of the contract without their having to keep their end of the bargain. That's what they're doing. They're living by their own rules. They're divorcing their spouses. And they have the audacity to cry and weep and moan that God does not look favorably upon them. What's the point of all this? Listen, their low view of marriage unions really shows their low view of their union with God. Let me say that one more time. Their low view of their marriages really ultimately points to their low view of their union with God. Again, marriage is designed by God to to imitate union with him. They're supposed to be in union with him. They don't care about him. But that's what their marriages point to. And so they don't care about their covenant marriages. So they're going to break contract for any old reason and not live out the purpose for which it's created, which is designed to show them that they are in union with God. So ultimately, their low view of marriage really shows their low view of their union with God. Are you with me? Please, I just, I just got to know, nod some heads so that I... I'll go back to the beginning, all right? Our, our, the title of the sermon, all right, I just want to make sure we're t- here, all right? That is the ultimate purpose of marriage. And since they disregard proper marriage union, they're really saying that they don't care about the ultimate purpose, again, which is designed to show uh, how God brings them into union with him. And thus, God did not accept their hypocritical worship. God did not accept their worship when they were in breach of contract or covenant with him, which is evidenced by their breach of contract in their human marriages. Now, church... Your view of marriage shows the reality of your view of the gospel union that you have with Christ. They were in the old covenant, the old contract. We are in the new covenant, the new contract, the new testament. We are in union with Christ by virtue of his death and resurrection and our faith and confidence in him to save us. That brings us into union with God, okay, Uh, with Christ. So your view of your marriage shows the reality of your view of your gospel union, our gospel union, because it's collective, our gospel union with Christ. Repentance from sin, turning away from you ruling your own life, and belief in Christ's perfect death, burial, and resurrection, that is what brings you into union with Christ. And God puts his spirit in you to seal that. Your marriage ought to portray this union between Christ and the church. Proper worship or proper living starts For God, when you recognize that you are in union with Christ and everything that you do matters, everything is an act of worship or an act of disrespect towards God because you are to daily present yourself as living sacrifices, not as like the Old Testament sacrifices, but every day I offer up my life to you, God, as an act 
of worship. Again, if the Israelites were out of covenant with God, their worship was not received. So too, proper worship can only happen when we are in proper union with our Savior. But our worship cannot just be whatever we want and whatever we like. We don't set the standard for what proper worship is. And worship, folks, it is not just singing. It is so much more than singing. That's just one aspect of the worship bubble that we are to live in. Our love and our worship for God must be set on his terms and his parameters, which are set in the scripture. Those parameters, while wide, they don't allow for everything in worship. You can't do something sinful and say that that's the act of worship to God. I'm lying for your glory, God. I will steal for your glory, right? That you can't sin and glorify God in acts of worship. The way that you're supposed to live is to reflect God perfectly. That's the purpose for which we were created. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that, that we were made in the likeness and the image of God, and we are to rule in this world just how God rules over the entire universe. We don't do that. That's why we're damned to hell. That's why Jesus comes to save us, to restore us, to bring us back into his perfect likeness. That's the story of Scripture. Therefore, you are to do that in all things. That is your act of worship, imitating Jesus. And so when we see that in Israel that God did not accept their worship because of their great sin and their being out of covenant with him, then we must take this as a warning. You can do ritual acts. You may do church things. You may talk Christian talk. You may come to church and you may give money in an offering container. And you might surround yourself with God's people. But it still may be that God does not accept your worship if you are outside of union with Christ. If you don't believe in the death and resurrection of Christ and you don't turn from your sin and turn to the rule of God, these things mean nothing to God. You're outside of union. You are not in covenant relationship with God. If you are some sort of polyistic, uh, polytheistic worshiper trying to love God and the gods of this world at the same time, then God has no regard for your worship. God will not accept your offering. If you love the things that he hates, and if you hate the things that he loves, God will not accept your worship. A call to worship God is a call to forsake all sin and all gods and to do things God's way. He must be your Lord and master. And if you're the mindset that you want to keep doing things your way and not his way, while still somehow hoping to get the benefits of what it means to be in intimacy with God, then you will not get those things. It's rather hypocritical to love your sin and to cling to it with all your might while trying to offer worship to God when he's really not your Lord. Your self-controlled life of sin, if that's the way you're living, proves that you're Lord of your life. And if you're in that condition, then it really shows that you don't believe the gospel, that you have not repented of your sin, even if you're offering praise to God. It means you're not in covenant with God, which means he has no regard for your worship. You may be hurt, and you may be offended like the Israelites and cry that God doesn't receive your worship on your terms, but it's polluted. It's offensive to God. And it means apart from Christ, your offerings mean nothing and you will die apart from God and be judged in your sin and for your sin for all eternity. 
you will be cut off from the tents of Jacob, cut off from the family of God. Listen, this is God's warning to those of you that would like to continue living like the Israelites lived. That's what his word is in part, a warning. A warning that you cannot come to God on your own terms. and You cannot approach him apart from turning from a life of rebellion and trusting Christ to save you. Christian worship is repentant and obedient while clinging to Christ for salvation. And that's why our worship is focused on these things in our songs and our prayers. And now let me say this. Your whole life is to be one of worship to God. And marriage is one of those ways that you worship God. In marriage, you are to be faithful as God is faithful to you, as Christ is faithful to you. Make sense? You're acting, your whole life should be an imitation of God. If God is faithful, you be faithful to your spouse. You imitate that. In marriage, you are to be patient because who is patient with you? God. In marriage, you're to be forgiving because who is forgiving to you? God. Some of you got the answers down. I think you've got my transcript ahead of time, okay? In marriage, you are to extend mercy because who extends mercy to you? Yes. God has shown you an amazing amount of its attributes in bringing you into union with Christ. Therefore, you are called to show those attributes and imitate God. God has forever united you to Christ. That is the good news. Therefore, you are not to deal treacherously with your spouse and divorce them. Neither of you are to mistreat each other. To divorce your spouse is to have a low view of marriage, and therefore, it shows that you have a low view of your union to Christ, which is forever. That being said, there are a couple of exceptions, and this is not a sermon designed to break out all the exceptions so that you can feel like you're free to get out of your marriage, okay? But nevertheless, there are a couple of exceptions where God permits divorce, but does not command it. That is different. The general normative principle is that God wants you to stay married because till death do you part. That is, your, that is what you vowed and covenanted to and promised. In which case, when you die, you have fulfilled your covenant and are now free from that covenant, and thus you are free to remarry. But how you treat your spouse can rightly or wrongly display the marriage union between Christ and his church. And please don't think that it doesn't affect your worship, because it does. In 1 Peter 3, 7, we are told that a husband's prayers, they can be hindered by his improper treatment of his wife. Maybe that's why God doesn't answer our prayers, husbands. Maybe wives, too. We don't love each other like we're we're being treacherous and ugly towards each other. You think God's going to give attention to that? Yo, you need to fix that. You get blessing from me because you're united to me. And you're not honoring the picture that I gave you to imitate that. So God may withhold his blessing in your prayers. If your prayers are hindered, your worship is hindered because prayers are worship to God. You see, God loves marriage so much that your poor treatment of it affects your worship and your intimacy with God. So husbands and wives, listen to God. If you are not loving your spouse like God wants you to, then it's time to repent. It's time to step back in line with how God has called you to live. You are in covenant with God, and therefore you are obligated to live as he says. He saved you from death and hell and the slavery that Satan had you bound to. You had to obey him, and he freed you from that. So please, brothers and sisters, you are in covenant with God, and therefore 
live as he says. You are, if you are faithless to your spouse, then you are faithless to God and thus faithless to the rest of the church because your spouse is either our brother or sister in Christ. Did you hear that? If we're united to God, we're brothers and sisters. So husbands, if you mistreat your wife, you're mistreating my sister in Christ, or vice versa, wives. If you're ugly and bitter and nasty, I dare say a Karen, all right? How people, all right? Just threw that out there because we know that cultural term, right? Hopefully your name's not Karen, so I, please forgive me, all right? If you're a Bob, no, uh, Bobs are nice guys, so are Karens, but you get what I'm saying. Man, I feel like I'm six feet under right now. <laughs> Somebody throw me a rope, okay? Um, now listen, if you are faithless to your spouse, you are being faithless to my family member in Christ. Maybe you never thought about that. So don't think of your marriages as a solo adventure. While many things are private, many things are private in marriage. I don't have to tell you what that means, okay? Because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, it is still, there's still a public thing. Okay, it's still a covenant thing. And so you shouldn't be mistreating my siblings or I shouldn't be mistreating your siblings. This is why the church should love and pray for godly marriages and we should contend for them. In Israel, to break marriage covenant was to break covenant with God and with the rest of the covenant people. It was a group thing. So again, to mistreat your spouse is to sin against the body of Christ since we are united together by Christ. And of course, I'm speaking to God's people. Okay? Now, if you're not a Christian, please listen to this. If you don't trust Christ to save you, then you are not in union with God. And that means you will be cut off from him completely one day unless you turn to him for salvation. And you will weep and mourn and gnash your teeth. and You will cry because God has not accepted the offering that you brought, that you thought was going to be okay, whatever that may have been. But God only accepts the offering of Christ on your behalf. That is, in essence, what you must bring. And you must say, Lord, this is all I have. I have nothing. I only have Jesus Christ, who is perfect for me, and who stands in my place and takes my death, which was pictured in the Old Testament sacrifices. Lord, I can't bring a perfection to you, so something perfect must represent me. And that perfection in the animal pointed to Christ. And then the animal slaughtered to get the death penalty for the sins that that person had committed and they were supposed to get. And therefore that points to Christ who dies in our place and rises again to bring us to God in unity. And if you don't believe that, you don't come to God and worship in that way through Christ, you're forever banished from the kingdom of God. You're cut off. Scripture says in Malachi, or the scripture is teaching us in Malachi these things how much God loves marriage and how it points us to, to his union and Christ's love for us and all of this, okay? Our second point this morning, God loves marriage or God's love for marriage is connected to a spiritual union. God's love for marriage is connected to a spiritual union. Look in verse 14 and the first part of verse 15. It says, but you say, why does he not? Meaning, why doesn't he accept our sacrifices? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with the portion of the Spirit in their union? Last week, unbeknownst to us, my mom gave me a call a week and a half ago and told me that she was going to get married. She got married last, uh, last Friday, surprised all her kids, and I was able to go witness that. The judge presiding over the marriage ceremony 
said that marriage is a contract. That's what was stated. Marriage is a contract. The exact wording that was used, and that is spot on. It sounds cold when you say it like that. But in terms of legality, that's what it is. It doesn't sound romantic. And you're right, it sounds serious. And it is. And that's why signatures are required. And that's, your signatures say that you agree to do what you said you were going to do. And your spouse signs and says that they're agreeing to do what they agree, uh, what they vowed to do. And breaking that contract has legal consequences, emotional consequences, but also consequences before God. Over the years, I've had the privilege of doing several dozen weddings. And after I open initially in prayer, I always start with this sentence. Friends and family, we are gathered here in the sight of God and man to witness the act of holy matrimony. Friends and family, we are gathered here in the sight of God and man to witness this contract. It's an important phrase, and its idea is taken from Scripture. Malachi, in Malachi, the Israelites are told that God does not receive their offerings. They ask why. He says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. In other words, marriage is not just between a man and a woman. Who made marriage? God did. For what purpose? To point to Christ's union. And so God witnesses all of marriages because that's what he designed it for. It's a matter between God as well. He made it. He's the one that joins husband and wife together mystically, even though you cannot see it. They are one flesh, he says. And not only is the one who unifies the husband and wife, but he's the one who witnesses the marriage. True marital union never happens, whether you're Christians or not. It never happens apart from God witnessing it. Whether it's two Christians marrying or two non-Christians, God is always the one who unites a man and a woman in marriage. God saw that vows were made. God saw that a covenant was made. And therefore, God unites them. And therefore, God sees also when you break your word, when you break covenant and violate the contract that you made with your spouse. And God sees when people try to break what he has joined together. Matthew 19, 6 says that the two are no longer two, but one. They are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, Matthew says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. All marriages are united by God and therefore only to be separated by God. That is the ideal picture till death do you part. That's when God separates you. I understand in a congregation this size, there are a thousand situations in which marriages have not fallen into this ideal. I understand that. It's not meant to cause you pain unnecessarily. We just need to see the ultimate truth for what it's saying. That marriage ideally is meant to point to Christ's union with us forever. So let's guard that. Let's protect that as best as we can. Malachi says this. He says, God is a witness between you and the wife of your youth. A woman of youth could be considered up to age 40 in the Bible. So those of you who are 40 and under, you're still young, all right? The rest of us, we're, we're teens, okay? We're in our teens. Whew. I redeemed myself from the earlier comment, all right? In Malachi, God is calling men to remember that they've been married to, the, to these women for a long time. That's the point of mentioning the wife of your youth. You've been married a long time. 
since you were really young. It's meant to evoke imagery of two lives starting together, building lives together. Dreams that were created long ago. Dreams of a family. Dreams of building a home. Dreams of growing old. And, And much of that stuff has now been fulfilled. And now, after all this, when your wife is older, you want to break vows with her and break covenant with her? God sees this too. After all this, it's not just the wedding day that he watched. She's your companion. Scripture says, your life partner, he's talking to the Israelites, walking with you through thick and thin, through battlefields and mines and treacherous living. Your spouse has been with you, committed, and you want to betray her and do this act of violence in leaving her? She's your wife by covenant, by contract, by vow, not by willy-nilly emotions that rise and fall, but by your word and agreement before God Almighty who united you. Malachi goes on to say, did not God make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? So here's what Malachi's getting at. God made them one. He did. We humans cannot unite a man and a woman in marriage. It's a spiritual act of God. He made them one. And even though these men have terminated their unions with their wives, Malachi is there to say this, that there's a portion of the Spirit in their union. He made them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union. In other words, even though divorce is on paper, There's a remnant of God's work still active in that wrecked marriage. There's a portion or remnant of God's spirit still in that divorce, which is on paper. God didn't separate them. You might say, he's involved in that marriage. Which is why we're told that spouses are not to divorce. But if they disobey God and they do separate... Scripture tells us they have to remain single so that the possibility of reconciliation can always remain open. But still we're told not to separate. For a second, I'm going to deviate from the text and I'm going to briefly address the exceptions of divorce. Where divorce, once again, is permitted but not commanded. Jesus, God himself, tells us that fornication or having sexual intercourse with another person who is not your spouse is grounds for a permissible divorce. Permissible, again, does not mean that you're commanded to. You may be able to show forgiveness and reconciliation and still work through that. But if you're unable to, there's a permission there in those rare exceptions. The Apostle Paul tells us that the other instance where divorce is permissible is when an unbelieving spouse abandons the believing spouse and just takes off. And he says, they're free in that regard. And that's really it. It, Now listen, I know there's other things. In cases of abuse, let me go through this. Because scripture doesn't address it specifically. We report that to the authorities. And us elders and pastors do that. We will do that. We will not see, I will not see my sister in Christ harmed. Okay? We report it to the authorities because we care about the safety of women and children and the elderly. Any of those who are unable to protect themselves. Maybe you're tiny and weak and frail. 
the law must be notified. If that abusive person says that they're a believer, then we call that person to repent while the authorities are dealing with them. You stop this. Don't ever deal treacherously with your spouse, and we call them to repent. If they refuse to repent, and of course, there's caution that needs to be taken. You don't just throw somebody back in a dangerous situation. But if they refuse to repent, the process of church discipline ensues. If it goes to its fullest extent and that person won't repent, and they're going to want to keep harming their family, then that person is removed from the church, cut off, because they're dealing treacherously with God, and they're not honoring what marriage is supposed to show, and we treat them as an unbeliever. We're to have no contact with that person except for preaching the gospel to them. In that case, because of their refusal to repent, the the abusive spouse has committed functional abandonment. Just like the unbeliever who deserts. They've committed functional abandonment where a wife and her children are unsafe to return home and that spouse is free to divorce. It's, It's messy. These are the cases where divorce is permitted with the correct process and must be done correctly according to Scripture. In all cases, though, we do fully believe that the grace of God can change people from being sinful to God-glorifying people. Scripture says, such were some of you. That's a beautiful phrase because it lists a bunch of sinful behaviors, sinful actions that show unbelief in Christ and lordship over one's life, a refusal to submit to God. All these sins are listed, and Apostle says, such were some of you. You were that. Not anymore. God has changed you. So we fully believe that salvation is a saving from sinful nature and sinful actions. And when a person won't change, there's something wrong. They're not saved if they're going to continue to be horribly and horrifically abusive to their family. Such were some of you, we pray. For a full treatment on marital issues, because there's a lot more remarriage, we're not, we can't cover all that. I would ask you to go back to Steve's sermon, Pastor C's sermon in 1 Corinthians 7. You can look that up online. Let's just get back to Malachi for a second. And you may think, well, what about this situation? I understand there's a lot of stuff. If you need personal advice on that, please come talk to us privately and the elders, and we'll help you look through Scripture, and we'll guide and protect you along the way. Okay? Malachi, what's the point of all this? God values union. God values a contract. God values covenant. God values faithfulness because he's faithful. He values his own faithfulness to Israel and their faithfulness to him. It's such a strong union between God and Israel, all right, uh, that he considers Israel as his wife. That's what God says of Israel. In Isaiah 54, 5, it says that Israel's maker is her husband. In Jeremiah 31, 32, it says that Israel broke covenant with God even though he was their husband. So Israel is looked at as a wife in the Old Testament, and God is looked at as the husband. God is a God of commitment and love and faithfulness, and he chose Israel, and he loves her. And even though he was their husband, they cheated on him. They broke covenant. They repeatedly did this over and over again. They went after other gods, and they chose not to love the God who redeemed them from Israel. Because of their continued spiritual adultery, God at one point even issues, because they're committing adultery on him, spiritual adultery. God, at one point, even issues a decree of divorce to Israel. In Jeremiah 3, 8 through 10, he issues a decree of divorce. But moments after that, literally words after that, he invites her to repent of her sin, and then he will remove his anger. 
and he'll choose to save her and bring him back to himself. So even, even God was willing to forgive the spiritual adultery. And you, church, you have to understand adultery in the human relationship is horrible. But remember, it is a picture of what it means to love God and him to love us. And therefore, adultery, horrible, horrible, points to even the greater horrible reality of what it means to love another God over the true God. It's, if you have to quantify it, it's far worse because it's against a far greater being. And God is willing to forgive. We are all spiritual adulterers. Do you get that? We have all loved something more than God, and yet God has brought us to himself. We're cheaters, and God is faithful. Do, do you hear that in Malachi? Do, do you hear? That is just God really loves us. How he loves us. Unreal. Undeserved. It's almost unimaginable, unthinkable, the love that God has. Can you just, I don't even want to think about anything else right now, but just how horrible my sin is and how great my God is. It's, it's phenomenal. Israel breaks marriage covenant with God, and they violated their own marriage covenants with each other and unbiblically divorced each other. If you recall from last week's sermon, I mentioned that God gave marriage to all humanity and how it points to Christ, right? We understand that. In the, that's the old covenant, though, where they, where they broke covenant with God in Israel, but marriage still pointed to the same thing. In the new covenant, in the new contract that we have with God, God makes it so that we will never break union with him. He does so by taking out our old hearts that are prone to wander, removes them, puts in a heart that beats for him, that believes in him, that loves him. He takes his law, his commandments, and writes them on our hearts so they're there, and we desire to obey them. And he puts his spirit in us to help us to become like him so that we can never abandon God like Israel abandoned God. That's the new covenant. Okay? What a blessing that is. So ultimately, true believers can't break covenant with God, which is why those who seem to have broken covenant with God and they, they want to go back to their old lifestyle, we were removed from the family of God because maybe we mistakenly accepted that person into the family of God when they were just faking it. Because the new covenant promises we can't ultimately do that. They might for a while, and in their removal from the family of God through their excommunication, maybe they wake up and realize, i got to turn back to God. And so it's an act of love to remove them from the family of God. It serves as a warning to them that you might not be saved. And hopefully in that warning, they return back to God. Okay? And that's why we share the gospel with them. Because of all this, right, we have to have a high view of marriage. We don't want to break covenant with each other because Christ doesn't break covenant with us, and he promises that we can't break covenant with him. And so our marriages are to picture that. Therefore, do not be faithless to your spouses. Brothers and sisters, don't be faithless to your spouses. That doesn't mean that you stay in a marriage that is miserable and filled with sin. What it means is that you stay married and you fight tooth and nail to kick sin in its butt and you get it out of your life. and You weed it out. Man, don't you hate hula hoeing in the high desert? It's back-breaking, right? Like, but but if, I, if, I, if I don't get it control of this, my yard's going to look like a jungle, and it, my dog's going to get thorns in it, and it just looks ugly. Where's my car? It's hiding in your weeds, dude. All right? 
people let their weeds get so big, but what, it's hard work to remove it. And what's the result of removal? Oh, beautiful. Sometimes sin is like that in your marriage. It's hard to get out. And sometimes you need a little help. Right? It's backbreaking. But that's what you do. You don't just, I give up. No, you push towards unity. You push towards you acting like God, praying that your spouse will do the same. That's what we do. Our marriages, they have a measure of intimacy, but they also have a measure of measure of publicity, meaning they're public as well. They're to be, our marriages are to be lived out in front of other people before God. It means that when we have hurting marriages in our church, we run to the rescue of our brothers and sisters to help them, to walk them through whatever valleys and struggles and turmoils they have, maybe ones that we've experienced. So let me show you the way out of this. We help them. We fight for our brothers and sisters in Christ because we want to help them glorify God in their marriage unions. We have an accountability, not just to God or our spouse, but to each other. Okay? For you that are single, it means that you need to reorient your thinking around the marriage, uh, thinking of marriage around God and the gospel. You ought not to pursue marriage until you, you get to know how serious of an undertaking it is. What a solemn task it is to honor God this way. What a privilege it is. What a joy it is. It means that you need to learn now what it means to keep your word in all things and prove to be faithful. Start practicing doing what you say you're going to do. It means that you need to stay pure and holy and sexually pure until you're united in covenant with with that person. And thus you get the sexual and the intimate blessings of marriage. You need to understand, listen, when you're united to God, you only get the intimacy with him in that union, that blessing. You don't get intimacy with God, knowledge of God, closeness with God, if you are in, uh, outside of covenant with God. That, that's why in marriage, right, you only get covenant blessings when you're in covenant with your spouse. Okay, Those, those intimate things. So, single people, keep your eyes pure. Keep your hands and other body parts where they belong. To yourself, until... You give yourself to one another in marriage covenant. And then you're to joyfully experience those things. And in that sexual intimacy and emotional intimacy, that you, you're like, wow, this is, this is really cool that God made this for us. And that is just but a taste of what you will get to know when you are truly and fully and finally connected to God in fullness. These are just temporary gifts that God gives us to help us understand that there's something greater that we can, we can hardly fathom. Third point, God's love for marriage is connected to your children. What? Yep, God's love for marriage is connected to your children. Second part of verse 15 says, what was the one God seeking? It says godly offspring. Why did God create humanity? I, I, sometimes I feel like a broken record on my part, and I apologize for that. But why did God create humanity? To display his likeness. And he told Adam and Eve, I'm going to make you one. And I want you to be fruitful. And I want you to be multiplying. Right? And they're like, four times four is 16. Not that kind of multiplying. All right? You have kids. All right? And you spread out. Because I made you to bear my likeness. And I want the whole world filled with my glory and other image bearers. I want godly offspring. That's why I made humanity. Of course, we know the story didn't go that way. All right? But the whole world is to be filled with the glory of God and image bearers. Do we do that? No. They sinned. We sinned. 
Therefore, we're to be judged and condemned. But in God's goodness, he sent Christ to be perfect for us and to be condemned for us so that through his death and resurrection, we might be forever united to Christ, forever happy in the Savior. And that one, that's what makes eternal life so great. We are in union with God forever. Again, marriage pictures that forever union. Okay? So God gave us marriage for several reasons. To point to his eternal union with Christ and the church. Right? That's one reason. God gave us marriage for companionship here on earth, and that all points to Christ. He gave us marriages so that we may experience the joy of physical intimacy. Right? That's a gift from God showing forward. But God also gave us marriage for the purpose of generating offspring, kids, children, little rugrats, if, if we're able to. And the point of having children isn't so that they can do all the hula hoeing that you don't want to do. So you, they're not, I mean, you teach them things, but they're not there. Finally, servants have arrived, okay? <laughs> it isn't so that we can have little people over, over whom we can feel superior. Listen here, you tiny person. You're not going to tell me what to do. I'm bigger than you. That's not the point of having children, so that you can just feel powerful, okay? Or superior. If that's your view of parenting, God help you. If you're one of those machismo people that wants to just go around bossing people and acting like that. I don't care if it's part of your culture or not. Your culture doesn't dictate how you live. Scripture does. You hear that? Goodness gracious. Well, that's how we Italians are. That's how we Mexicans are. No. no. How does God want you to be? Well, that's how I was raised. No. How does God want you to be? Okay. We're to raise godly offspring. Our marriage is one reason that we're, uh, that's one reason we're given marriage, is to have kids if possible and raise God-glorifying offspring. The world is in full rebellion. Listen, and through our marriages, we have the opportunity to rear little tiny people, sinners, so that they will love God, that love the gospel and desire to act like God and the purpose for which God created them. That's what it means to be godly, be like God, to properly bear his image and rightly display his likeness. That's what it also means, all right, in part. Rearing godly kids is different than raising moral kids. Listen, raising godly kids is different than raising moral or patriotic children. An atheist can raise moral children, but that doesn't mean they're godly, right? An unbeliever can raise their kids to love country and military. Hoorah, right? But that doesn't make them godly. Let's make sure we don't confuse moralism and patriotism with being a Christian. Those two things are very different than being godly. Kids are not born godly. They're born little demons, right? <laughs> Give me my bottle or I will crush you. Right? Here, right? That's what they're saying inside when they're crying, right? They would snatch it from you, right? But kids aren't born godly. They're born with a sin nature ever since the fall. The way that we raise godly children is first by helping them come to believe in the gospel, Godliness starts with first acknowledging that one is a sinner and that we all need to stop our rebellion. Being godly starts with believing that God is the perfect God-man, that Jesus died and rose to remove our sin. And we've got to teach our children these things. Once a child comes to the point of faith and repentance in their life, then we continue to show them the other attributes of God in his word so they'll know what God is like in theory. And then we act that out so they can see it and we help them to see that more from the word. We help them to see how he acts and how he talks, how he thinks, so they can emulate that and give him glory. And we model that for them. They're 
Therefore, if our offspring are to be, be godly, we've got to help them know Christ and continue to help teach them the word. We must help them to love God, to hate sin, and to hate sin, but not out of fear of us. We help them transition into people who love and fear God wherever, wherever they are, whether we're there or not. And this is, again, church, this is not a solo effort. This, this is a church-wide thing. We are a people who are in covenant with God, right? Therefore, proper parenting includes getting your kids involved in the covenant life of the church. That means young and old. We're to associate with each other, young and old. It's important to understand that your kids need more than their peers to stay godly and faithful to God. They need, I promise you, when they're young, their peers won't always help them do that. They need older people to walk with them and help them. And this is one reason why we have student ministry, and I love it. Honestly, I don't place a lot of value in churches that only do peer-to-peer ministry. You are missing out on so much. I want to be connected with older people and younger people. As parents, you should want your kids to be connected with older people as well, not just people with whom they can have play dates. Your kids need to see other marriages functioning rightly. Your kids need to hear other people sharing God's word with them. You need the entire church life experience. That's part of how you rear godly children. They need more than just your godly influence in their life. In our church, when if you were to look at our teen ministry, I see men and women who are leading them, who are coming together uh, to help their to help the parents of those teenagers who are trying to help them be godly. We need we see that those parents need help, so we gather together godly men and women who still are simple but doing their best to try to love God, and we invite them with us adults to come study God's word, and we teach them. That's what we do in student ministry. We adults teach them, and then we help them grow further in godliness. We invite uh, our teens to help out in kids' classes where they're participating now in discipling people younger than them. So they're associating with older people and younger people, and if you've ever seen our worship team, I don't think anybody up here is over 16, right? Even Jim, all right? He's under, he's a teenager, okay? There's this whole life experience that everyone needs. No one's over 16. There's some young people up here. You do your parts as parents, and then we do our part as the church, helping our younger brothers and sisters grow together in the Lord. And that's how we live out our marriages properly. Okay? Some of the saddest churches I've ever seen are where student ministries are only with students, and that's it. And they have no other part in the church. And it usually bears fruit that does not last. Okay? Now, we don't nail it 100% of the time, but we recognize that the entire church plays a part in helping parents raise their kids. Okay? So this is how we do it. All right? So what do you do? You maybe arrange gatherings with other families so that you can get together. And as you spend more time together, these things become a natural outworking of discipleship where you talk about God's word, you talk about church life, you talk about your kids, you talk about your families, and you just pass on godly things to each other. But it takes diligence. It takes effort. Our last point, God's love for marriage is connected to spiritual discipline. Look at the third part of verse 15. It says, so guard yourself in your spirit. You, guard yourself in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, he covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Malachi tells the Israelites that they're to guard themselves in their spirits and minds so that none would be faithless to the wives of their youth. 
Be spiritually disciplined in this. Guard it. Watch out. Take heed. You be on patrol of your life and make sure that everything is good on all fronts. Watch your life. Watch your thoughts. Watch your doctrine. Watch your association and friendships. Guard it. Guard yourselves in your spirit. Do everything you can to protect your spirit and your mind from the things that would lead you to be faithless to your spouse. Remember your vows. Let your wedding remind you of your commitment. Remember that you're part of covenant people. Remember that God has witnessed your marriage and made you one. Remember the cross and your union to Christ. Remember to be in the word. Remember to gather together regularly and to take communion regularly and to pray together regularly with God's people and with your family. That's how you guard your spirit. This isn't easy, is it? It takes effort. It's not chill out mode when it comes to making awesome marriages that glorify God. Make time for one another. Make time for communication. Don't allow sin to grow. Worship together. Take communion together with the church. You, along with the Israelites back then, are to display the righteousness and the glory of God, and you're to shine brightly. You are cleansed by the blood of Christ, church. God sees you in white robes. The white robes, the white righteousness and perfection of Christ. Therefore, act righteous. Let's be faithful in covenant with God and let our marriages picture this covenant with Christ. If you decide you want to be faithless to your spouse and divorce them, the Lord sees you committing an act of violence against your spouse and against our community. Instead of exhibiting white robes of God's righteous glory, the Israelites are covering their garments with violent sin. It was a violent thing for a divorce for a man to divorce a woman in Israel after many years of marriage. Do you remember, just think about not having a spouse. You remember when we went through Ruth, how hard it was for them when the men in their family died? Horrible situation for them to find themselves in. But here, you got men leaving their spouses after many years of marriage. They're divorcing their wives in order to go and marry pagan unbelievers, perhaps a lot younger. And that was evil and sinful and violent against these women. Likewise, for us, it's a terrible thing to leave your spouse without biblical cause. Divorce should be the last option, but only under biblical warrant. Reconciliation should be sought after because it pictures Christ's reconciliation towards us. Now, let me say that out of these two marriage problems, one was causing the other. Because the men wanted to marry pagan women, they divorced their spouses. One was flowing out of the other. So it's an important principle of sin to show you here. Listen to this. It's often the case that some sins in your marriage flow out of other sins. Some sins are root sins causing the other things. And some sins are symptoms of the deeper issue. It's important to cut out the root so the other sinful fruit dies as well. Let me give you an example. What do I mean by this? Let's say that a lazy person doesn't want to work. That's sin, right? And so now it's come time to pay their bills, and they're hungry. So what do they do? Eh, I'm going to go take from somebody else something that doesn't belong to me. They're going to steal. And you can tell them to stop stealing, but what's the root problem? Their laziness. One was flowing out of the other. Fix the laziness. You'd be a hard worker because God's a hard worker. You get a job and you work, and you'll have money to get what you need so that you don't have to steal. Of course, both sins need to be addressed and fixed, but a lot of times we don't realize that some sins are brought on by other sins. This is the case of the Israelite men. 
They're divorcing their wives in order to marry pagan women. And the desire to marry pagan women was sinful, and therefore it led to the divorces that we are reading about, which are sinful as well. Treacherous, violent, both of these sins. Betraying God, betraying their community people. But one sprung forth because of the other. And it's important to recognize that when you are guarding against sin in your marriage, that the surface sins we might see at first are not always the root cause of what's wrong in our marriage and our lives. First and foremost, if there's sin in your marriage, there's a problem between you and God. That's where it starts. The root needs to be addressed. Generally, there are sins, though, that spring forth from other sins. And so we see that Israel is told a second time to guard against themselves so that they would not be faithless to one another. May we also double guard. He says it twice. Guard yourselves. May we also double guard, be diligent and disciplined to make sure that we don't make shipwreck of our union with our spouses or with God. Church, I think we know what to do after hearing from Malachi, and I promise you there was a thousand other things I would have loved to have said in this. For sake of time, we cannot cover everything. But we know what to do after hearing from Malachi. Let's honor God in our marriage because that points to his faithfulness to us. Let's be faithful to each other as God has been faithful to us in Christ. Let us raise godly children. Let us help each other with these things. If you're single, pursue biblical marriage. The world has it so screwed up. Remember that God loves marriage because it points to Christ's love for you. And if you're not a Christian, I plead with you to turn from your sin. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again so that you can be in covenant or union with him. And then, if he is your Lord, you begin to walk with God and with us, because that's what we do. And pray for each other, church. Help each other. Love each other. Do not give up. Every marriage struggles. Every marriage struggles because every marriage has two sinners. I know it's not easy. Your pastors know it's not easy because we have tough times too, and and we make it hard for our spouses to want to stay married to us at times. I promise you that. We have to fight through it. And if you need help, come see us. We'll love you. We'll help you. We'll identify you. You will not be sitting under people who help you under self-righteous judgment. I promise you that. Your pastors love you. Your fellow church members love you. We are one. So do not be faithless to your spouses. It is a treacherous thing to the family of God to leave your spouse unnecessarily and unbiblically. Don't be treacherous to your spouse and do not betray God. He has made you one. Do you see how this is connected to Christ? It's not just about let's do things the world way and want to be emotionally happy, and that's important. It's not, uh, I'm going to save purity just because I don't want to get pregnant outside of marriage and I don't want to catch a disease. That's the way the world thinks. That is so tiny. That's such tiny thinking when it comes to marriage. The big way to think about marriage is how it all points to God, how it all points to Christ, how it all points to our union with him. May we act accordingly and love accordingly, church. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bless your name. We thank you for Christ, who is our Savior. We thank you for...